1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's been 40 years since the CDC first reported cases of a deadly rare lung infection in five previously healthy gay men. The infection came later to be understood as a symptom of HIV-AIDS, the syndrome that has now claimed more than 700,000 American lives and 30 million worldwide. We'll hear reflections from those who knew and cared for the earliest and sickest patients in an era of scarce public health information and widespread homophobia. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. On June fifth, 1981, a CDC report noted a rare type of pneumonia in five gay men in Los Angeles, and that two of the men had died. These would later become known as the first documented cases of AIDS. In this hour, we look back at those early days, 40 years ago, when there was little knowledge of where the illness came from or how it spread, fear, and widespread homophobia as people fought to treat and survive the mysterious illness. I'm joined first by Hank Plant, a retired reporter for KPIX-TV who won a Peabody Award in 1986 for AIDS coverage. Hank Plant, thanks so much for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Mina.
1: You were living in Los Angeles in the early 80s when the CDC report came out. Do you remember what your reaction was to it?
2: Uh, It was frightening because uh, in 1981, I. was I was one of the first openly gay TV reporters in the country having come out years before then and uh, so I was very plugged into the gay community and I started to see uh, my some of my friends lose weight and get very sick quickly. Uh, we heard the the rumors about this uh, what was first called gay cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so my first reaction was to be frightened
1: frightened and then probably looking back now realizing that you were maybe seeing the very first people dying or getting very sick from aids it sounds like
2: i think that's an important point because those of us who were gay at the time knew that this was going to be a big deal mm. the first reporting on this happened in uh, the gay press particularly in new york uh, and uh, while it was being discounted. I mean, you just mentioned the first five cases that were reported. That was Dr. Michael Gottlieb in L.A., who noticed that there were five gay men in L.A. with uh, this uh, very unusual form of pneumonia uh, that they should not have gotten. Uh, and, you know, that uh, wasn't uh, that story wasn't uh, on the front page of the New York Times for two more years hmm. after that. But the gay press picked up on it. So being gay, we knew that this was a big deal and going to get bigger.
1: You know, that reminds me, I do have this cut I want to play for you, Hank, which I just want to say is very hard to listen to, that I think really illustrates just how little attention it was getting. This is from a White House press conference that was held in October of 1982, where a journalist, Reverend Lester Kingsolving, is attempting to ask the White House press secretary, Larry Speaks, if President Reagan is even aware of the AIDS epidemic.
0: Does the president have any reaction to the announcement of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic? Six hundred over six hundred cases. AIDS. Uh, so over a third yeah, of them have died. It's known as gay plague.
3: <laughs> no, it
0: is. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. That uh, one in every three people that get this have died, and I wonder if the president is aware of it.
2: I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You
4: don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that, Larry.
0: <laughs> do you? Oh, I you didn't answer my question. Oh,
2: How do you know? Does
0: the president, in other words, the White House looks on this as a great joke.
2: No, I don't know anything about it, Lester. You, you, what does the president, we,
0: does anybody at the White House know about this epidemic, Larry?
2: I don't think so. I don't think there's been Nobody any, knows. there's been no oh, personal correct. experience here, Lester.
1: Sounds like there might be something wrong with the file. I'm not sure if you can hear it. Could you hear that, Hank Plant?
2: A little bit, and but the, the crucial part of it is that, yes, the reporter asked Larry Speaks, the White House press secretary, about AIDS, first time it had been brought up, uh, and the result was laughter. There was laughter in the room at this uh, gay disease, laughter from the reporters, laughter from the White House staff. Uh, you know, I mean, I stood in front of Ronald Reagan uh, in 1987 in D.C. in a speech when he said the word AIDS for the first time publicly, And I made a note in my reporter's notebook uh, at that moment that he said that word AIDS, 23,000 Americans had already died. Uh, So I'm extremely proud of the work that my TV station KPIX was doing because government wasn't doing anything at the federal level. Uh, And uh, we were going on the air every night telling people how to not get the disease. I think we saved people's lives.
1: Yes, you, you're you reporting on the AIDS crisis. This became your daily beat while you were here. And you have described that period uh, beginning in 1981, basically, and then 85 when you were at KPIX as 15 years of hell, especially between 81 and 96. Can you talk about the stories you were writing, the people you were interviewing at that time?
2: Uh, People don't remember how bad it was. Uh, You know, I I went around the country promoting this film I was in about San Francisco General and its response to AIDS, which was so wonderful. Thanks to my friend Paul Volberding, who's one of your guests today. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film was called 5B. And so I went around the country helping to promote the film and I was on a lot of panels and there were a lot of gay people in the audience. And I was pretty surprised that they just had no idea. Uh, younger gay people had no idea how bad it was uh, for uh, people with AIDS back. People were getting kicked out of their apartments. This is what I was reporting on. People were being fired from their jobs. Uh, to test positive was a real stigma. Uh, and uh, you know, the real heroes of the of that era were the same heroes of COVID. They were uh, doctors, nurses, medical workers. Uh, I mean, you think about this. And I have such respect for Paul and, and his colleagues uh, for Dr. Volbering. Uh, I mean, when AIDS came along, uh, we didn't know how it was spread, where it came from, uh, were, were these doctors bringing it home to their families, their kids, very much like COVID. And, you know, they showed up, they did their jobs, these healthcare workers. Uh, I just love them for it.
1: It's interesting that you're talking about these parallels between covering AIDS in the 1980s and the COVID pandemic and As you say, some of the heroes of that time, is there anything else before I let you go, Hank, that that you want to talk about, felt similar to you about these two health crises?
2: Well, uh, there there are many differences. uh, Because in the beginning, the only people who cared about this were a few doctors, like and, uh, and, and and gays and lesbians uh the society at large didn't get worked up about aids the difference now of course is with code everybody was scared and everybody was paying is paying attention to it uh so there are many many differences uh thank god we had protease inhibitors uh in uh, 1996 uh the changed treatment and uh and, and also we have uh truvada also known as prep which is about the closest thing is that we've had to a vaccine with aids so we're seeing i think both both ends of that pandemic beginning and close to the end
1: well hank plant i really appreciate you sharing your reflections which really cover the whole gamut from just how different things were also just the role of journalism at that time and then also where we are right now and what we're learning as a result of having just gone through this pandemic and our connection to those early stories hank plant a retired reporter for kpix tv thanks again thank you mina And Hank Plant mentioned Dr. Paul Bulberding, who's Professor Emeritus, the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. And I want to invite Dr. Bulberding to join us now. Dr. Paul Bulberding, are you with us?
4: I'm with you. Thanks. Good to be back.
1: Yes, appreciate having you on. And as Hank Plant was processing the emergence of this health crisis through this reporter's lens, he was pointing out that you were seeing some of the earliest cases here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Can you talk about um, the first people you treated, what you remember about them, about that oh, moment? Yeah.
4: yeah, I remember it uh, so clearly. Uh, it was my first day, and literally, on the job at San Francisco General Hospital as a faculty member. i just finished my training at UCSF. And on my first day, on July 1st, 1981, saw the first patient with Kaposi's sarcoma who was admitted to the hospital. Uh, it's a, Kaposi's is a cancer that usually affected only very elderly men before before this epidemic here here he was a 22 year old gay man oh. uh, who was horribly wasted away that hank was pointing out that you know people just don't remember anymore and i think that's absolutely true in in the medical world as well people just haven't seen uh, the, the devastation of this disease
1: cabosy sarcoma did you recognize that right away
4: I think I may not have recognized it if it hadn't been already in his chart. Uh, It had been diagnosed uh, just then, and I didn't know anything about it. It was such a rare uh, problem, as were the infections that Mike Gottlieb and others were seeing. And and in retrospect, we saw a few of these kind of constellation of patients even before the first reports, uh, but it really took the CDC pulling it together and, and, and hmm. letting us know this is happening to, right. before we really saw it. Yeah.
1: By the time it got there, yeah. you you realize that these patients are dying, right? You you realize... Every, everyone,
4: yeah, they all died. Every, every one of our patients until, you know, 1996 died of this disease.
1: Yes. How early did you realize that this was, it was called a death sentence early at the time, that, that this was a very big crisis and that it would essentially lead to death? yeah
4: we, we learned about it uh, quickly it felt fast at the time nothing like covid where the knowledge is just skyrocketing but uh, but it was a we learned a lot and you know to a person every one of our patients who came in sick uh, died usually within a few months sometimes a year or so later uh, but there, there's no infection in humans that's more fatal than, than HIV if it's not treated. 98 plus percent of people will die if it's not treated. It's it, And it took us a while to lo- realize that, uh, but we, we were seeing it day to day.
1: Because it took you a while, what were the treatment protocols at that point?
4: Well, there, there really wasn't any treatment. Uh, we, we, we took care of the problems. It's called palliative care. We took care mm-hmm. of... Uh, Uh, problems as they arose that were making our patients uncomfortable but there was nothing to reverse the disease at all Uh, and at first we didn't even know that it was an infectious disease that it took us a while to to realize that then there was a lot of fear around that issue but at first it was really kind of a mystifying exciting actually as a physician new disease you don't expect to see that in your career.
1: So it sounds like really what you were doing essentially was easing suffering while you were trying to wrap your mind around what this really was.
4: That's all we were doing. And that's, that's important. You know, it's very important uh, to be there with our patients. I think, the, as Hank said, the 5B, the inpatient ward, uh, was a place where people, a lot of people died and where, you know, that kind of hands-on care uh, was, was really important for those people and, their, and their, you know, the people that cared for them.
1: Well, this listener tweets, I'll never forget the day in 1992 when our beloved coworker Ed gathered us in the conference room to tell us he was going on medical leave because he had AIDS and was dying. Never could wear the clothes or shoes I had on that day ever again. Rest in peace, Edward H. Peterson. We're remembering the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic 40 years ago, 40 years after those first reported U.S. cases. And we're talking with Dr. Paul Volberding, Professor Emeritus at the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at UCSF. And you, our listeners, are with us. Please share your reflections by calling 866-733-6786, 866 733 Six seven eight six. email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your comments and reflections on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're reflecting on the 40th anniversary of the first documented cases of AIDS, and you, our listeners, are sharing your reflections at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. This listener writes, I was a college student, a straight woman, hanging out in Castro bars with my friends because the men were polite and charming. Then the charming young men started dying. Recently I saw a dark, tidy bruise on a friend's arm, just a normal bruise that older people often get, and felt again that old jolt of shock and dread from the days of seeing Kaposi's lesions on the arms of healthy young men and knowing it meant death. We're talking with Dr. Paul Volberding, uh, Professor Emeritus of Medicine at UCSF, and also with us now is Dr. Kathleen Clannan, Medical Director at Alameda County Healthcare Services Agency, a primary care doctor treating people with HIV at Highland Hospital in Oakland. Dr. Clannan also helped start and grow a multidisciplinary HIV prevention and care program in Alameda County and has served thousands of people. Dr. Clannan, really appreciate having you on as well. Thanks for the invitation. So can you talk about when you first started seeing some of the cases in the East Bay? Because I understand it it started to show up more a couple of years after those early 1981-82 years.
5: That's right. Um, Probably the first cases we started to see in the East Bay were really around 1984, and then our um, epidemic peaked in uh, the early 90s. But I remember, um, seeing my first, um, cases of a couple people in the hospital in 1984, um, and seeing the, the, um, blood vials coming out of the rooms with, with five or six labels on them saying possible AIDS, you know, uh, blood hazard, um, and just wondering every day going into the hospital how my patients were going to be doing and how they'd done overnight in terms of whether the nurses and the other folks had treated them okay.
1: And some of your patients were experiencing not just the physical impacts of the illness, but you described before rejection from family, friends. Can you talk about what they would share with you around that? Yeah, um,
5: uh, untreated AIDS is just so cruel in terms of what it does to people. Um, And one of the things it does is it makes the people who live with you afraid of you. Uh, Certainly in those days it did. Um, so I remember, for instance, one of my early patients who got too sick to stay in his own apartment, um, and his mother um, allowed him to come back home. He told me uh, with tears in his eyes about that, that how grateful he was that she had she'd let him come back home to take care of him, but she would not let him eat at the family dinner table with the other uh, with the rest of the family. She brought him his food on a paper plate up to his room and asked him to stay in his room. And that contradiction of, you know, both his his gratitude for, you know, for have, her having opened her home to him, but also, you know, the feeling of rejection that came along with his being banished from the dinner table, that I'll never forget that.
1: Dr. Volberding, we've, we've heard a lot, too, about just how important it was to be able to have a ward that was dedicated to treating AIDS patients, in part because, I mean, you're hearing the the things described by Dr. and around family members treating people with AIDS, but there was also fear and concern, I understand among some doctors and, and nurses. And yet on the other side of it, doctors and nurses very willing to try to devote all their attention to being there for these patients.
4: Well, you know, I think uh, we all think of parallels between uh, COVID and, and the AIDS epidemic, but, but certainly that's one, you know, where for, for, quite a while um, from 1981 until 1984 about Uh, we didn't really know what caused AIDS. Uh, We didn't, we, we thought it was a a virus by the end of 82. uh, We didn't know if we were uh, at risk. We didn't know if we were already infected. Uh, I had, you know, horrible thoughts of having taken it home to my family. My wife is also an internist and was taking care of AIDS patients. So um, it was a, it was a pretty, uh, Pretty tough period uh, that we went through, but still, you know, we were willing, and, and I think certainly I wasn't alone. There were a lot of us that were working uh, with these patients, and you know, in COVID, you s- see the same thing of, of young doctors kind of willingly stepping up and doing their doing their duty, which it, it really is.
1: And Dr. Clannan, there were so many theories that were going around about AIDS. Could you talk about what some of the different theories were and the different impacts of some of these? Well,
5: we knew pretty early on that it was uh, acting like a, another blood-borne pathogen like hepatitis B, um, which generally gets spread by different ways of, that people get exposed to other people's blood and then by sex. Um, but there were, um, people probably remember this, there were theories, for instance, there was a cluster of cases in a town in Florida that caused people to have concern that captured people's attention for a couple of weeks that mosquitoes might be able to spread HIV. Um, that, was, that one took a long time to, to, um, to, to clear away out of people's uh, concerns. And then um, also people worried that they uh, might uh, get HIV in their dentist's office. Or you know as a as a result of having um, a procedure other kinds of procedures in the hospital, um, so all of those things you know were you know very uh, very unlikely to result in spread, and the mosquito thing was not true at all, but they were things that captured people's attention and made them more anxious mm-hmm. about just being in the presence of somebody who had HIV.
1: Well, Bonnie writes As a young woman, my first social work job was working with HIV AIDS patients to assist them in applying for benefits and entitlements. This was in the early 1990s in SF and in Oakland. My family was ill informed and baselessly terrified that I would contract aid simply by working with my clients and doing the occasional home visit. They went so far as to offer me money to quit my job. Lucy writes, straight people, you just experienced firsthand what it was like when a government basically didn't care if you died of a disease for one year. Now imagine everyone you know dropping like flies for eight years and the president not even mentioning your existence. That was Reagan in the 1980s. Um, Dr. Volberding, you talk about how basically the people who came in to see you died. How how did you deal with that? What would you say to patients? But I'm more interested in learning what they would say to you in response uh, when you told them.
4: Well, to a person, and these, these, you know, the early epidemic in San Francisco is all young gay men. And, and they knew, as Hank was saying, they, they knew about this. This was definitely uh, a part of, part of the vocabulary. And they would come in um, and almost to a person, they would say, I, I know, Doc, I know this is, this is bad, uh, but I'm going to beat it, um, and that optimism was—it would kind of tear at your heart because, while you know, as a professional, you would say, "Of course, we're going to work with you and we're going to help help you do that." Uh, but in the back of your head, you'd say, "You know, no one, no one beats this. We don't, we don't have a way to do that." Um, so you would see somebody who was still pretty healthy often. Um, knowing uh, that you're going to get a chance to watch that person get sicker and sicker and finally die. Um, and, and as uh, Kathleen was saying, you know, the, the fear and the, the issues surrounding the stigma, uh, even within, I think, even within the gay community, people with capacities often felt stigmatized, that people were looking at them or they thought they were. So it's, it, was, it was bad on a, on a lot of different levels.
1: Again, Dr. Paul Volberding is uh, Professor Emeritus of Medicine at UCSF and Dr. Kathleen Klanen is Medical Director at Alameda County Healthcare Services Agency. And we're joined now by Vince Chrysostomo. Vince Chrysostomo, are you with us? Vince Chrysostomo yes, I'm is a <laughs> great is director of aging services at San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And Vince Chrysostomo, I understand that you learned you were HIV positive in 1980. Eighty-nine, is that right?
6: Yes, I was living in New York. It was, 19, it was May of nineteen eighty-nine.
1: What do you remember about that time when you learned about your diagnosis?
6: Well, I remember, you know, there was a rumor going around that Asians didn't get it, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I got tested. Um, I won't go into that story, but um, I got tested and I didn't plan to come back for my results because I thought there's no way I could have it. I wasn't really sexually active. And um, I remember standing on the corner of like Columbus and 72nd Street getting into a taxi and I felt this chill. And I said, something's going to happen that's going to change your life. So that night I went home and there was a card in the mail that said, please come back to the clinic. We need to talk to you about your test. So, um, Mm
7: -hmm.
6: I was 28 and, um, I called the clinic the next morning. They said, come down now, which I said last time it took a bit of time. So that kind of, I went and, you know, I, they sat me in a hall in a waiting area and I was sitting there and I heard this scream and I saw this person run out of a room down the hall and he fainted and four or five people came back up came behind him, picked him up and carried him back to where he came from. I thought, what, uh, where am I? What, what's happening? And then, so anyway, I, I'm ushered into the doctor's office and, um, you know, she starts talking and I had to stop her and say, um, you're scaring me. Um, am I HIV positive? What's happening? And she starts talking again and then she blurts out "You're HIV positive. Keeps talking and I say, wait a second. What does that mean? And she said, Well, you've got the virus that's released to cause AIDS that no, it is she did say it, that causes AIDS and um, most likely you'll die and I think she told me I asked her how long she thought I might have and she said, You probably won't live to see thirty. So I was twenty eight at the time.
1: Oh my goodness.
6: Um but you know, I just turned sixty in February, so I outlived that.
1: Yes. I I mean, I know that your work today as a director of aging services at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, you, you did, you survived those years. But at the same time, what you're describing just sounds so incredibly traumatic. And I'm sure for a lot of the people that you also work with, I imagine that uh, there was a lot of trauma.
6: Yep. That is one thing that I think, um, an HIV positive diagnosis. I think even now today, even with all the medications, I still think it's a bit traumatic for people, but um, yeah, it's been um, a lifetime filled with trauma, but you know, I've been blessed. I've also had a lot of good happen to kind of balance all of that out. And it's such an honor to be part of this panel today.
1: Well, um, we, we so appreciate having you on. And I'm just curious what you mean by a lot of good has happened. Well,
6: you know, I'm still working. I found a career. Um, I've had an ability to um, be with friends. I've had some incredible moments. I've been able to travel the world. I've been able to come back to San Francisco. Um, You know, I have, you know, COVID for me, this is my second pandemic and for some of my 50 plus members, in their 70s into their third, but it was a way to kind of reframe what has happened and just focus on my resilience. And, you know, as a person of 20, I really didn't have the foresight. And you know, just recently, I started planning my first trip a year from now, as opposed to like, let's just see where we are. Because, you know, all through my adult life, since I was, you know, 30, um, I never knew where I was going to be the next year. And so I always just thought, let's make the most of it. You know, I was able to travel back to Guam, where I'm from, and do HIV AIDS education and be embraced by the community.
8: Mm.
6: Um, I have met some incredible people. Um, you know, I can't even begin to tell you the incredible people that, that have crossed my path and the incredible friends I've made. Um,
1: One of the things that I was so struck by that you said to our producer was that you are planning to live instead of preparing to die. And I, I have wondered about when you felt like you made that transition, you know?
6: Well, you know, at the start of the shelter in place, you know, after a few very traumatic days and this thing that I just, I can't do this again. Um, I can't go through this. I can't just, you know, I just, it was just appalling to me that I'd have to go through this the second time in my life you know survive one pandemic only think i might die in the second in a second one and i had a a talk with someone who said vince in times like these you need to make choices that are optimistic he said optimism brings hope where do you want to be when this is done because it will pass we will emerge from this and what is the life that you want to have so i just use COVID as a time to reframe what has happened to me there's been a lot of similarities you know like i remember. Going, this is before I tested positive, but going to St. Vincent's in New York and seeing all these bodies on gurneys lying in the hallways um, when COVID first started, hearing and see, you know seeing some of the images of that happening was really traumatizing. But I said, "But that, you know, what's going to be different this time? How can I make a different choice?" Mm. And so that's what I've tried to do. Instead of you know giving up hope, I have tried to breed hope or cultivate hope. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: It makes a lot of sense. Let me go to some callers. I'll bring Allison from Redwood City in. Hi, Allison. Thanks for calling.
9: Hi. I was working for a big auction house at the time. um, Well, the 85, 86. So the disease had existed, but it wasn't quite as widely publicized. And I remember it hitting Time Magazine. I was working for a big auction house. My roommates were working in the arts at a theater company at a large restaurant and caterer. So we had lots of coworkers that were gay. People were dying right and left. And then my mother got cancer, and I had to move back to Chicago, where it wasn't anywhere near. as everywhere. And I just remember the Castro shutting down, all the marvelous restaurants shutting down, how afraid everyone was. And I had to have a corneal transplant a few years later. I came back because my doctor was at Mount Science. And they told me that the cornea I was going to get headaches. AIDS. And before that, blood, you know, it was blood and body fluids, right? And corneas don't have... Um, a blood supply, so it was like, how could that happen? And I just remember just how frightening it was and how people wouldn't touch anyone. And I remember Lady Di in a hospital going in and hugging people and how important that was for the movement and how Liz Taylor uh, fought for people with AIDS in Hollywood. That was gigantic. Hmm. And so it was just people forgotten how incredibly frightening it was and how it narrowed the beautiful openness of San Francisco and the welcoming. You know, it was so scary.
1: Well, Allison, appreciate you sharing your remembrance. Difficult, it still affects you, I can hear that. Let me go next to Kelly in Oakland. Hi, Kelly, what would you like to share?
8: Uh, yes, I just wanted to share a reminder, a little story. My mother was a nurse for 40 years in San Francisco. She lived in San Francisco, and when the AIDS crisis hit, I remember coming to talked with her, go to lunch one day, and she sa- I said, Mom, how are you doing? I read the Chronicle, this new strange disease, Kaposi's sarcoma, and she said, yes, one of my fellow nurses um, has it and was showing it to some of the nurses last week, and he doesn't know what it is, and then, of course, she took a leave, but then my mom went full on to take care of it was then Roth K. Davies, which is now the PMC in the Castro, had big award. And mom just worked tirelessly as a nurse, just like they did with COVID. And I mm. want to give a shout out to the nurses that did the bedside care, because yes. it was a very dangerous uh, disease at that time. Very, not dangerous, but brutal for the patients. And my mom would express that, come home and say how hard it was. And, but the one takeaway that was so beautiful for her and for us is that she said, I've never seen such tender, loving care by the partners. That they took such beautiful care at the bedside. Let me do this. Let me help. They wanted to be a part of giving care and love to their partners. And she always remarked about how beautiful that was. So shout out to the nurses that did the day-to-day care and bathing and gave the meds to these poor men that were suffering. Thank you.
1: Well, Kelly, thank you. And and yes, shout out to the nurses. We're getting your reflections on the AIDS epidemic's early days, 40 years from the first reported cases by the U.S. government. We're talking with Dr. Paul Volberding, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Epidemiology at Bio- and Biostatistics at UCSF, and Dr. Kathleen Clannan of Alameda County Healthcare Services, Medical Director there. You, our listeners, can join us by emailing us at forum at kqed.org, posting thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at kqedforum, and of course, calling us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
3: We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, 40 years after the first reported U.S. cases in Los Angeles. You can call us at 866-733-6786 with your reflections. You can post them on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. And Julie writes, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas in the early 90s, getting my master's degree. My sister and I were looking for ways to get involved in the community through our church and joined a group called Rain. We were assigned care partners and spent time with these two gentlemen running errands for them, taking care of their household needs and generally being close to them. They both passed away within months. The experience broke my heart, but the community that rallied around the care partners was so strong and caring and loving, so much unnecessary loss. Vince Crisostomos, with us, Director of Aging Services at San Francisco AIDS Foundation, has lived with HIV since 1987, uh, Vince has said, and he was diagnosed in 1989. Dr. Kathleen Clannan is Medical Director at the Alameda County Health Services Agency and primary care doctor treating people with HIV at Highland Hospital in Oakland. And Dr. Paul Volberding is Professor Emeritus of Medicine at UCSF. Dr. Volberding, I'm wondering if you could talk about what happened in... 1996 that is the turning point uh, can you talk about what happened then and how it changed things
4: yeah uh, thank you for asking that um a couple really important things connie Lopsey, who uh, was my co-founder of the of the aids group at the general hospital died that year of, of of breast cancer and just before uh we went we a lot of a lot of us went to a meeting in vancouver uh, where the results of the of the first successful treatment trials were announced, um, and at that at that meeting, r- really the world changed because uh, before that our, our treatments, things like AZT by itself did a little uh, something; they slowed the disease down just a bit. Um, but for the first time, we saw people actually starting to recover, and there are people that are alive today that were. Uh, really very sick at that time that um, uh, it, are still alive because of the treatments. The treatments have gotten just so powerful. Mm. Uh, and it was just one of those, those moments where, you know, none of us that had been working with us uh, from the start of it could, could believe uh, that suddenly uh, there was hope. Um, there hadn't been much hope before that.
1: Dr. Clannon, how about for you, similar, um, what changed for AIDS patients and for you and other medical professionals that were treating them?
5: I think, you know, like, as Paul said, that there was uh, a little bit for me, the, um, when is the shoe going to drop? When is it going to stop working for people? But it was so exciting um, to see people gain weight back and have their infections clear. The challenge for me, working uh, mostly with African-American people in Oakland was that as a group, they tended to be pretty conservative and not interested in um, trying new medicines uh, for lots of good reasons. Um, But in this case, I was telling them, run, don't walk, come into the clinic tomorrow. I really want you to get started on this. But it took a lot of convincing um, and uh, working with people around their fears um, about being on a new medicine to really get um, get them on the drugs and be able to have them see how it made them feel so much better.
1: Vince Chrysostomo, I want to know what that was like for you.
6: Well, then- you know, I was one of those people who was hard to convince. Um, you know, I believed in alternative therapies and um, the power of um, Louise Hay, things that. Um, but I had a very good doctor who I actually ran into last year and was able to thank him. Um, and I was, we had our appointment. And he told me of the medications, and um, I said, oh, yeah, I know, but um, I don't think I want to do that right now. And he just blew up. <laughs> he said, you, saw, you know, he, I won't tell you what what he said to me, but he said, you know, you know how many people I couldn't help, and here you are just, you know. And I said, wow, that's kind of taken aback. So I said, okay, um, you know, I'll take the prescription. I'm going on a trip, and when I come back, I will... But you know, my decision. So I took the prescription, got it filled, um, left on my trip, came back, took the pills. And I just made sure everybody knew that I was doing this because um, it felt right. And what I learned from that is you've got to follow the science, you've got to be educated. You know, you've got to be, you've got to educate yourself, you have to have your awareness, and you have to make decisions based on what you know, based on what you fear. And, you know, I had, I struggled with the first line of, um, I developed something called lactic acidosis um, after a couple of years and I had to go off meds for a while, but I've always found back, uh, found my way back. And now I have been undetectable now for about seven or eight years, I believe, and more than that. So, you know, it that, that experience also informed my COVID experience. You know, I was one of the, when the vaccine became available to me, I was one of the first people there to say, I want to do this. And it was liberating. That's incredible. That was one of those it's... things about <laughs> how's it going to be different this time, you know? Wow. I was like, I, so. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, that whole I trajectory was, you're describing is is incredible. <laughs> just in your yeah
6: I, life. That's yeah. one of the blessings, and I've I've just always had people who cared enough, sometimes more about me than I cared about myself. Ooh, I'm sorry.
1: No, no, take your time. Who
6: um, who just, you know, would point me in the right direction. You know, I worked with this woman who I haven't been in touch with for a long time, for almost 25 years. Because, you know, with you, all we have to do is give you a little nudge and send you on your way. And I've been, I've been very blessed.
1: Thanks, Chris Ostomo, Director of Aging Services at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, helping people through his own experiences. Clearly, Philip in Oakland, join us. Thanks for waiting, Philip.
7: Yeah, hi. Um, I guess I'll have commented. Of, i of a shout out to the people at, at uh, five, Ward 5B. I arrived at the variant in 83 to go to uh, graduate school and to uh, and be a researcher and academic and quickly um, was caught up in the crisis of what was uh, became the AIDS crisis. and nobody knew what it was. Um, and um, I got involved with uh, Santi, which is a volunteer organization, was a volunteer organization, um, helping provide support for people uh, diagnosed and then with the East Bay AIDS project and switched well switched career trajectories to a clinical focus. Um, to eventually becoming a clinical psychologist rather than an academic. Um, so it, it, the 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 AIDS epidemic had a huge impact on me professionally and then personally. Uh, it couldn't have been more dramatic in that. Um, well, I lost my partner of eleven years in uh, June third, nineteen ninety six, and. Um, he, there is a way in which my, my, what I learned during the, the, that epidemic was losing pretty much everybody that I'd ever loved, um, was that gay men, gay men die, um, and, uh, women don't, uh, lesbians don't. And, um, to be honest, it's been a lifetime challenge in that, um, I really I don't know very many gay men. Um, certainly not as many as I do a lesbian that I've not gotten close because the emotional risks for me are enormous. I I don't know that I could go through uh, that kind of loss again. Huh. Um, and it's, it's 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 been it's been um, it's been a journey. What can I say? The, the new epidemic now. I'm at a, oh, when it came on. When it arrived, it was just like, "Oh yeah, I know this, I've been here i done this um the, the 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 main difference that I could see was that it was affecting everybody and it wasn't affecting well not just targeting our uh, stigmatized social groups, and so we got immediate um global attention to the disease and unfortunately you know we've made huge progress over the last fifteen months and um, I look back and I think, my goodness, if the, the Reagan administration of the '80s—if we'd done—if we'd done what's been done with uh, the pandemic, this new pandemic, um, with COVID-19, we would have we would have cut the suffering uh, by you know a, a factor of a, I don't know what. So yeah, well, there's, a, there's a slight bit of residual bitterness there, but at the same time, we've moved forward. I think on stigmatization as well. So I don't think if we had another. AIDS epidemic, we have quite the same response or lack of response that we had in
1: '84. Yeah. Well, Philip, you are. Saying so much there, in what you said. First of all, I'm I'm very sorry for your loss, and I appreciate your honesty with which you said that you interpreted and decided it affected who you formed relationships with. But I also hear echoes of what you're saying in other listeners about the reaction to COVID versus the reaction to AIDS. This listener tweets, for example, "There is an anger that a lot of queer elders carry from the pain of seeing friends die and the government indifference. It doesn't weaken with time. I feel like I understand that in a much more visceral way now." There is an unforgivable crime to deny the truth knowing it kills. COVID showed us both how capable our medical community is when cost is no object and it's yeah. a priority. You know, I, it leads me to ask Vince Chrysostomo, what more needs to be done to fight HIV AIDS today? To fight HIV today. Well,
6: you know, it, it all goes back to human rights equity. I mean, the things that we didn't get right in the HIV epidemic, which we're, we have a chance to deal with now are, are issues around gender, issues around race, um, health equity. I mean, if if COVID didn't provide an example of why we need universal health care um, in this country, I don't know what will. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of systems that need to be changed. Um, there are I feel that there's a lot of people that need to be held accountable. I mean, the fact that we had to lose 600,000 people in this, in the COVID response when, you know, had there been a better coordination, we could have probably saved a few lives. Um, there's, there's so many things that need to happen. And, um, You know, I know that I will be spending the rest of my life probably working to try to um, write that, um, using that thing of what did I do the last time this happened and what am I going to do differently this time? But, um, yeah, Yeah. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, and right now we're going through a period, you know, with the last election where it seems like if you could take it literally, 50% of this country doesn't care about the other 50%. I don't think that's true, but that's what it looks like. And um, that's yeah. really daunting.
1: Well, Dr. Clannon, we're still hearing about how particularly black men in the South, for example, continue to die of the disease in hugely disproportionate rates. We still have an estimated 1.2 million people in the U.S. as of 2018 with HIV. I mean, we also are hearing we KQED just did a piece about the disproportionate impact on transgender people as well. I mean, can you talk about what more needs to be done in your view as well to fight HIV since you are also still working to fight this every day?
5: Yes. Yes. In fact, I'm in the clinic right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I think, I think there are a couple of things that it is true that, um, HIV right now is people who are getting HIV right now tend to be young, um, black, uh, and Brown men and women. Um, and, uh, Uh, you know, people who are still in stigmatized groups. Um, In Oakland, one of the things we're working on is trying to make sure that people have housing because a series of things happen when you lose your housing and are living outside or in unstable housing that make it harder for people to take their medicines. So looking at, you know, how do we actually invest in people's lives so that they can invest in themselves by taking the medications every day? I think that's really the direction we need to go, and it's also part—you know—it's part of the larger movement toward health equity and understanding the way that that uh, systemic racism pushes people away from clinics and doctors and from um, from really being able to, you know, to benefit from the advances that have, that have happened.
1: Well, we're hearing quite a bit from listeners that I want to um, share and remind listeners that you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Quite a few shout outs here. Greg writes a special shout out to the millions of lesbians who took care of their brothers who were suffering from AIDS. These tireless women volunteered at many service organizations in SF at Shanti and the AIDS Foundation. They cared for AIDS patients with love and compassion as nurses, nonprofit employees and friends. They lessened the pain for untold numbers of gay men. A listener tweets, my mom was a hero in the AIDS crisis just by being a mom to these young dying men. She fed them, helped move them to new homes and loved them. She was a great mom and also very active with the quilt project. And Michael writes, I'm a 60-year-old straight man who grew up in San Francisco. In 1989, my ex-wife, who also grew up in San Francisco, realized we had been to 43 funerals. And it was only August. We stopped going, not because we didn't care, but because the burden of grief just became too much to cope with. The pandemic has made me reflect on that experience and just how shattering it was. Let me go to Lori in Oakland. Hi, Lori. Thanks for waiting. Hi, Lori. Are you
9: there?
10: Very poignant um, uh, show for me. My brother-in-law was diagnosed in '86 the same day his dad was diagnosed with cancer and his parents did not know that he was gay. We, the siblings knew, but his parents did not. And he said, you have to tell mom and dad, I can't tell them. Hmm. And it was so hard um, because his dad said, well, yeah, you know, I kind of thought he might be gay. And his mom said, I never knew. And then after Frank died, my husband went to church with his mom Um, just to support her. And he walked in and the priest was giving a sermon on how bad gay people were. And he walked out and she said to him, you know, an hour later, I wish I could have walked out. And I'm just so grateful that the world has changed so much that people, LGBT community is able to be the LGBT community. I know it's not perfect, but it's so much better. And it was in some ways wonderful, but many ways heartbreaking to see how his mom, Mary, became friends with his friends after he died and joined Flag and worked on the quilt project. But Frank never knew it. What he knew was that his parents were embarrassed of him or he couldn't tell them.
1: Could you give us one sentence that describes Frank? What was Frank like? makes me cry. He
10: was... Um, immaculate he was uh he he would like put on a christmas tree like each um strand of tinsel you couldn't possibly throw it on he was just (laughs) he was just a lovely human who was so kind when he was sick um really sick my grandpa was also sick and he called me up to tell me how sorry he was and then his mom was in Tahoe with us when he was really sick and i said We talked to him, and he was sort of out of it. And I said, Mary, we can't be here. We need to be with Frank. (laughs) And he went home, and he he ended up going back to Salem to be with his mom and was there one day before he died because his brother was going to get married two or three days later, and he didn't want his mom to have to decide. Hmm. But he wanted to be with his mom, and his dad had died before. It's just so great. It's not quite that way
1: anymore. Lori, thank you. Thank you so much for telling us about Frank. Liz wants to talk about... Uh, Liz's former lover and best friend in 1992, I lost my former lover and best friend J. Sidney Jones to AIDS. We lived together in medical school. He eventually became a psychiatrist in New York City. I think of him so often, most recently this morning before your program, reflecting how much richer so many lives would have been, especially mine, had he not been a victim of this wretched disease. I miss him terribly. Joe writes, as an RN in 1983 to 84 at Highland in Oakland, I will forever remember the eyes of the breathless young men I admitted with pneumonia. They stared at me with desperate, unblinking fear in their eyes. I too felt a desperate impulse to care for them, to help them, but I would return the next day to find they were already gone, time and again, gone within 24 hours. I want to thank our listeners for their reflections, for telling us about the people that we should remember. I want to thank Dr. Paul Volberding of UCSF, Dr. Kathleen Clannan of Alameda County Healthcare Services, and Vince Crisostomo of San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And I want to thank Susan Britton for producing today's incredible segment. You've been listening to Forum. Thank you all for listening. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production
8: of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.